Chapter Nine of Sir Nigel. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Clive Catterall. Sir Nigel by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Nine. How Nigel held the bridge at Tilford. The king looked at the motionless figure, at the little crowd of hushed, expectant rustics beyond the bridge, and finally at the face of Chandos, which shone with amusement. What is this, John? he asked. "'You remember Sir Eustace Loring, sire?' "'Indeed, I could never forget him, nor the manner of his death.' "'He was a knight-errant in his day.' "'That indeed he was. None better have I known.' "'So is his son Nigel, as fierce a young warhawk as ever yearned to use beak and claws, but held fast in the mews up to now. This is his trial-fight. There he stands at the bridgehead, as was wont in our father's time, ready to measure himself against all comers.' Of all Englishmen there was no greater knight-errant than the king himself, and none so steeped in every quaint usage of chivalry, so that the situation was after his own heart. He is not yet a knight. No, sire, only a squire. Then he must bear himself bravely this day, if he is to make good what he has done. Is it fitting that a young, untried squire should venture to couch his lance against the best of England? He hath given me his cartel and challenge, said Chandos drawing a paper from his tunic. "'Have I your permission, sire, to issue it?' "'Surely, John, we have no cavalier more versed in the laws of chivalry than yourself. You know this young man, and you are aware how far he is worthy of the high honour which he asks. Let us hear his defiance.' The knights and squires of the escort, most of whom were veterans of the French war, had been gazing with interest and some surprise at the steel-clad figure in front of them. Now, at a call from Sir Walter Manny, they assembled round the spot where the king and Chandos had halted. Chandos cleared his throat, and read from his paper, "'A tous seigneurs, chevaliers et escuyers.' So it is headed, gentlemen. It is a message from the good squire Nigel Loring of Tilford, son of Sir Eustace Loring, of honourable memory. Squire Loring awaits you in arms, gentlemen, yonder upon the crown of the old bridge. Thus says he, for the great desire that I, a most humble and unworthy squire, entertain, that I may come to the knowledge of the noble gentlemen who ride with my royal master, I now wait on the bridge of the way, in the hope that some of them may condescend to do some small deed of arms upon me, or that I may deliver them from any vow which they may have taken. This I say out of no esteem for myself, but solely that I may witness the noble bearing of these famous cavaliers, and admire their skill in the handling of arms." Therefore, with the help of St. George, I will hold the bridge with sharpened lances against any or all who may deign to present themselves while daylight lasts. "'What say you to this, gentlemen?' asked the king, looking round with laughing eyes. "'Truly it is issued in very good form,' said the prince. "'Neither Clarissieux, nor Red Dragon, nor any herald that ever wore Tabard could better it. Did he draw it of his own hand?' "'He hath a grim old grandmother, who is one of the ancient breed,' said Chandos. I doubt not that the Dame Ermintrude hath drawn a challenge or two before now. But hark ye, sire, I would have a word in your ear, and yours too, most noble prince. Leading them aside, Chandos whispered some explanations, which ended by them all three bursting into a shout of laughter. By the rude no honourable gentleman should be reduced to such straits, said the king. It behoves me to look into it. But how now, gentlemen? This worthy cavalier still waits his answer. The soldiers had all been buzzing together, but now Walter Manny turned to the king with the result of their counsel. "'If it please your majesty,' said he, 
we are of the opinion that this squire hath exceeded all bounds in desiring to break a spear with a belted knight ere he has given his proofs we do him sufficient honour if a squire ride against him and with your consent i have chosen my own body squire john widdicombe to clear the path for us across the bridge hmm what you say walter is right and fair said the king master chandos you will tell our champion yonder what hath been arranged you will advise him also that it is our royal will that the contest be not fought upon the bridge since it is very clear that it must end in one or both going over into the river but that he advance to the end of the bridge and fight upon the plain you will tell him also that a blunted lance is sufficient for such an encounter but that a hand-stroke or two with a sword or mace may well be exchanged if both riders should keep their saddles a blast upon raoul's horn shall be the signal to close such ventures as these where an aspirant for fame would wait for days at a cross-road a ford or a bridge until some worthy antagonist should ride that way were very common in the old days of adventurous knight errantry and were still familiar to the minds of the men because the stories of the romancers and the songs of the trouvères were full of such incidents their actual occurrence however had become rare there was the more curiosity not unmixed with amusement in the thoughts of the courtiers as they watched chandos ride down to the bridge and commented upon the somewhat singular figure of the challenger his build was strange and so also was his figure for the limbs were short for so tall a man his head was also sunk forward as if he were lost in thought or overcome with deep dejection this is surely the cavalier of the heavy heart said manny what trouble has he that he should hang his head mm, perchance he hath a weak neck said the king at least he hath no weak voice the prince remarked as nigel's answer to chandos came to their ears by our lady he booms like a bittern as chandos rode back again to the king nigel exchanged the old ash-spear which had been his father's for one of the blunted tournament lances which he took from the hands of a stout archer in attendance he then rode down to the end of the bridge where a hundred-yard stretch of greensward lay in front of him at the same moment the squire of sir walter manny who had been hastily armed by his comrades spurred forward and took up his position the king raised his hand there was a clang from the falconer's horn and the two riders with a thrust of their heels and a shake of their bridles dashed furiously at each other in the centre the green strip of marshy meadowland with the water squirting from the galloping hoofs and the two crouching men gleaming bright in the evening sun on the one side the half-circle of motionless horsemen some in steel some in velvet silent and attentive dogs hawks and horses all turned to stone on the other the old peaked bridge the blue lazy river the group of open-mouthed rustics and the old dark manor-house with one grim face which peered from the upper window a good man was john widdicombe but he had met a better that day before that yellow whirlwind of a horse and the rider who was welded and riveted to his saddle his knees could not hold their grip nigel and pommers were one flying missile with all their weight and strength and energy centred on the steady end of the lance had widdicombe been struck by a thunderbolt he could not have flown faster or farther from his saddle two full somersaults did he make his plates clanging like cymbals ere he lay prone upon his back for a moment the king looked grave at that prodigious fall then smiling once more as widdicombe staggered to his feet he clapped his hands loudly in applause 
"'A fair course and fairly run!' he cried. "'The five scarlet roses bear themselves in peace, even as I have seen them in war. "'How now, my good Walter? Have you another squire, or will you clear a path for us yourself?' Manny's choleric face had turned darker as he observed the mischance of his representative. He beckoned now to a tall knight, whose gaunt and savage face looked out from his open bassinet as an eagle might from a cage of steel. "'Sir Hubert,' said he, "'I bear in mind the day when you overbore the Frenchman at Cannes. Will you not be our champion now?' "'When I fought the Frenchman, Walter, it was with naked weapons,' said the knight sternly. I am a soldier, and I love a soldier's work, but I care not for these tilt-yard tricks, which were invented for nothing but to tickle the fancies of foolish women. Oh, most ungallant speech, cried the king. Had my good consort heard you, she would have arraigned you to appear at a court of love with a jury of virgins to answer for your sins. But I pray you to take a tilting spear, good Sir Hubert. I had as soon take a peacock's feather, my fair lord, but I will do it, if you ask me. Here, page, hand me one of those sticks, and let me see what I can do. But Sir Hubert de Burg was not destined to test either his skill or his luck. The great bay horse which he rode was as unused to this warlike play as was its master, and had none of its master's stoutness of heart, so that when it saw the levelled lance, the gleaming figure, and the frenzied yellow horse rushing down upon it, it swerved, turned, and galloped furiously down the river-bank amid roars of laughter from the rustics on the one side and from the courtiers on the other sir hubert was seen tugging vainly at his bridle and bounding onward clearing gorse-bushes and heather-clumps until he was but a shimmering quivering gleam upon the dark hillside nigel who had pulled pommers onto his very haunches at the instant that his opponent turned saluted with his lance and trotted back to the bridgehead where he awaited his next assailant Ooh, the ladies would say that a judgment hath fallen upon our good Sir Hubert for his impious words, said the king. Let us hope that his charger may be broken in, ere they venture to ride out between two armies, remarked the prince. They might mistake the hardness of his horse's mouth for a softness of the rider's heart. See where he rides, still clearing every bush upon his path. By the rood, said the king, if the bold Hubert has not increased his repute as a jouster, he has gained a great honour as a horseman but the bridge is still closed, Walter. How say you now? Is this young squire never to be unhorsed? Or is your king himself to lay lance in rest, ere his way can be cleared? By the head of St. Thomas, I am in the very mood to run a course with this gentle youth. Nay, nay, sire, too much honour hath already been done him, said Manny, looking angrily at the motionless horseman, that this untried boy should be able to say that in one evening he has unhorsed my squire, and seen the back of one of the bravest knights in England, is surely enough to turn his foolish head. Fetch me a spear, Robert. I will see what I can make of him. The famous knight took the spear when it was brought to him, as a master workman takes a tool. He balanced it, shook it once or twice in the air, ran his eyes down it for a flaw in the wood, and then, finally, having made sure of its poise and weight, laid it carefully in rest under his arm. Then, gathering up his bridle so as to have his horse under perfect command, and covering himself with the shield which was slung round his neck, he rode out to do battle. Now, Nigel, young and experienced, all nature's aid will not help you against the mixed craft and strength of such a warrior. The day will come when neither Manny nor even Chandos could sweep you from your saddle. But now 
even had you some less cumbrous armour, your chance was small. Your downfall is near, but as you see the famous black chevrons on a golden ground, your gallant heart, which never knew fear, is only filled with joy and amazement at the honour done you. Your downfall is near, and yet in your wildest dreams you would never guess how strange your downfall is to be. Again, with a dull thunder of hoofs, the horses gallop over the soft water meadow. Again, with a clash of metal, the two riders meet. It is Nigel now, taken clean the face of his helmet with a blunted spear, who flies backward off his horse and falls clanging on the grass. But good heavens, what is this? Manny has thrown up his hands in horror, and the lance has dropped from his nerveless fingers. From all sides, with cries of dismay, with oaths and shouts and ejaculations to the saints, the horsemen ride wildly in. Was ever so dreadful, so sudden, so complete an end to a gentle passage at arms? Surely their eyes must be at fault. Some wizard's trick had been played upon them to deceive their senses, but no, it was only too clear. There on the greensward lay the trunk of the stricken cavalier, and there, a good dozen yards beyond, lay his helmeted head. "'By the Virgin!' cried Manny wildly, as he jumped from his horse. "'I would give my last gold piece that the work of this evening should be undone. How came it? What does it mean? Hither, my lord bishop, for surely it smacks of witchcraft and the devil!' With a white face the bishop had sprung down beside the prostrate body, pushing through the knot of horrified knights and squires. "'I fear that the last officers of the Holy Church come too late,' said he, in a quivering voice. "'Most unfortunate young man! How sudden an end! In medio vitae, as the holy book has it! One moment in the pride of his youth, the next his head torn from his body. "'Now God and the saints have mercy upon me, and guard me from evil!' The last prayer was shot out of the bishop with an energy and earnestness unusual in his horizons. It was caused by the sudden outcry of one of the squires who, having lifted the helmet from the ground, cast it down again with a scream of horror. "'It is empty!' he cried. "'It weighs as light as a feather!' "'For God, it is true!' cried Manny, laying his hand on it. "'There is no one in it!' "'With what have I fought, Father Bishop? Is it of this world or the next?' The bishop had clambered on his horse, the better to consider the point. "'If the foul fiend is abroad,' said he, "'my place is over yonder by the king's side.' Certes, that sulphur-coloured horse hath a very devilish look. I could have sworn that I saw both smoke and flame from its nostrils. The beast is fit to bear a suit of armour which rides and fights, and yet hath no man within it. Nay, not too fast, Father Bishop, said one of the knights. It may be all that you say, and yet come from a human workshop. When I made a campaign in South Germany, I have seen at Nuremberg a cunning figure devised by an armourer which could both ride and wield a sword, if this be such a one i thank you all for your very gentle courtesy said a booming voice from the figure upon the ground at the words even the valiant manny sprang into his saddle some rode madly away from the horrid trunk a few of the boldest lingered uh, most of all said the voice would i thank the most noble knight sir walter manny that he should deign to lay aside his greatness and condescend to do a deed of arms upon so humble a squire for god said manny if this be the devil, then the devil hath a very courtly tongue. I will have him out of his armour, if he blast me." So saying, he sprang once more from his horse, and, plunging his hand down the slit in the collapsed gorget, he closed it tightly upon a fistful of Nigel's yellow curls. The groan that came forth was enough to convince him that it was indeed a man who lurked within. At the same time 
his eyes fell upon the hole in the mail corselet which had served the squire as a visor, and he burst into deep-chested mirth. The king, the prince, and Chandos, who had watched the scene from a distance, too much amused by it to explain or interfere, rode up, weary with laughter, now that all was discovered. "'Let him out,' said the king, with his hand to his side. "'I pray you to unlace him and let him out. I have shed in many a spear-running, but never have I been nearer falling from my horse than as I watched this one. I feared the fall had struck him senseless, since he lay so still.' Nigel had, indeed, lain with all the breath shaken from his body, and as he was unaware that his helmet had been carried off, he had not understood either the alarm or the amusement that he had caused. Now, freed from the great hauberk, in which he had been shut like a pea in a pod, he stood blinking in the light, blushing deeply with shame that the shifts to which his poverty had reduced him should be exposed to all these laughing courtiers. It was the king who brought him comfort. "'You have shown that you can use your father's weapons,' said he, "'and you have proved also that you are the worthy bearer of his name and his arms, for you have within you that spirit for which he was famous.' but I wot that neither he nor you would suffer a train of hungry men to starve before your door. So lead on, I pray you, and if the meat be as good as this grace before it, then it will be feast indeed. End of chapter 9